Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, a podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis of the beautiful game. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me as ever is the TWP's MVP, Mr Duncan Castles. And because it's Tuesday, he's on your clock answering the burning questions our listeners want answers to. So, let us not delay with any banter or awkward duck puns and get stuck straight in. First question is from Lou. His Twitter handle is at Zidaneista. Duncan, we get tons of questions about Maurizio Pochettino. Uh, and Lou wants to know what's happening. Do you have any updates on the former Spurs manager? Well, look, we've been telling you and talking about where things stand with Pochettino from before the time he lost his job at uh, Tottenham. So we identified very early in the season that uh, the Tottenham players were had noticed the change in him and were unhappy with the way he was managing him. And the, sort of that, that pattern that went into effect where um, Daniel Levy was forced to dismiss him. Uh, retain him at the club. Um, he's on gardening leave. He's still a, a Tottenham employee, still being paid by Tottenham, which complicates his future because there will be a compensation package that has to be sorted out with one of the hardest men in football to negotiate with, Daniel Levy. Um, but he has been looking for another job. And the latest information I have um, is kind of an update on, on what we have told you before and that he has a great interest in being Manchester United manager. But the latest information I have is that specifically he and his people are targeting the Manchester United management job and believe they can secure it, and believe they can convince the Glazers. And I think it's the Glazers who are key here. I don't think this is a decision that will be um, fully made by Ed Woodward. Obviously, Ed Woodward is involved in the process. And my information is that Ed Woodward has... Uh, is keen, has been keen on Maurizio Pochettino and there have been conversations with his representatives and um, discussions have been put in play about the possibility of him becoming Manchester United manager. These are um, old discussions that, that date back uh, before the time Jose Mourinho was appointed as manager, but also newer discussions um, across the last year. Um, so it seems that Woodward is a keen admirer of Pochettino and you can see why, if they are forced to change Uli Gunnar Solskjaer, which is something they don't want to do, you know, they've built this uh, cultural reboot strategy around him, and, it, and it's very much that. They got their man, and then they built the strategy, which, uh, which, seem, which as some of our listeners have pointed out, and as we've talked in the podcast, is a problematic way of, of designing um, such a radical change to club working. But if you're going to stick with that strategy, and from a PR perspective, it's been quite successful for them, you can see that Pochettino ticks a lot of boxes because his reputation in football is a, as a man who um, has built teams using younger players, using homegrown players, both at Southampton, both at Tottenham. Twice done that in the Premier League to great success. Um, Tottenham, obviously, the one that he gets the most credit for because at the end of that period, he took a team on a significantly lower budget from their competitors to Champions League final. Didn't play well second half of that season and, and it preceded his dismissal, but uh, 
that level of achievement is way beyond what this current Manchester United side are doing. So you can see him being a kind of slot-in replacement for Solskjaer where they can continue along this route of saying we're going to focus on homegrown players, we're going to focus on younger players, we're going to focus on players we think can develop uh, and change the, the pattern of play and the pattern of success over an extended period of time. Um, do better in the Premier League. Uh, be competitive in the Champions League again. He obviously doesn't have that Manchester United history, which is one of Solskjaer's big selling points. You could argue his biggest selling point. Um, he won't be able to hark back to Sir Alex Ferguson in the way that Solskjaer does and, and, and push so many buttons in terms of this is the Manchester United way of playing. But you would expect Pochettino to actually implement a way of play um, that is far more attractive uh, and effective than the one that Solskjaer has put in place at Old Trafford, where you know we frequently see the Manchester United team setting up with a back five um, on their home turf against more challenging opponents and sitting deep and uh, and hoping to score goals on the counter attack, take advantage of the pace that are in the, in their side. But as I say. I don't think this is purely down to Ed Woodward and the decision he takes about Solskjaer. I think ultimately this will come down to the Glazers. Um, as we've told you in the podcast recently, they have become increasingly concerned about the performance on the football side, something that didn't particularly bother them, something that they're not bothered in from the perspective of, of watching entertaining football or the glory of, uh, of winning titles. Their, their priority is to make money from the club. But what they have seen is that their ability to make money from the club is becoming finally um, affected by performances on the pitch. Um, they risk losing a lot of commercial revenue if they fail to qualify as a Champions League for a second contextive season. They've already uh, warned the stock market to expect revenue to be significantly down for this season, with possibly with worse to come. Commercial revenue has been flatlining for, for three years at Manchester United. Um, they have spent a lot by their standards on the transfer market. So the, the amount of spending on the team and the increase in wages has been substantial. There's also been a lot spent on the Woodward-driven um, overhaul of the scouting and analytical system, which Woodward repeatedly talks proudly of when he, in the few occasions where he does make public statements these days. And, uh, and you can understand the Glazers questioning whether these decisions are correct because it's affecting the bottom line. So I think when this decision is made, if it's made, if if the results continue to be poor for Solskjaer, if he misses out on that Champions League qualification, then the Glazers will be the ones at the very least signing off on the decision, but also, I think, directly involved in this decision. Um, but what is clear from my contacts is that Pochettino now desires that Manchester United job and feels like it is the next uh, place for him to work, feels he's ready to take on that challenge and, um, and has his people actively pursuing it, kind of in a, in a way that harks back to Jose Mourinho's um, long campaign and efforts to secure the job when Louis van Gaal was struggling in 2016 and, and looked like missing out in Champions League qualification. It took a long time for that to, to be done. There was division in, in the Manchester United board over whether he was the right appointment or not. And, um, and his agent in particular had to do a lot of um, 
groundwork to convince the Glazers and the Manchester United board that Mourinho was the right appointment at the time. And I think we're seeing a kind of repeat of that process in Pochettino's attempts to be the next manager in Old Trafford. Well, we've got a pertinent question now from Trevor at Trevi7, which kind of follows on from your answer there, Duncan. He's coming at it from the point of view, if, if Pochettino were to take over as Manchester United manager, would he actually be able to win trophies? He says that there's no doubt that he can get a team to play well, and there's no doubt uh, about his, his ability to get the, the, the ball in the deck and play the Manchester United way, but, but does he have it what it takes uh, to win titles at the club? Well, if you look at his track record, that's a fair question to put because this is a man who's not won a major trophy as a manager for all his success um, in his career and, and for all he's managed to place himself at a level where clubs like Real Madrid and Manchester United have been inquiring about his services. Um, he hasn't won silverware. And, you know, we've talked about in this podcast several times that there is a, there's, there's an important element, I think, in any footballer and any football coach's career, which is actually getting teams over the line. There's a skill involved in when it comes down to the final or when it comes down to the final stages of a season, particularly a tight season, to, um, to mentally get those players to believe that they can win and will win. And you know, part of the problem at Tottenham, obviously, was they had a squad of players who, in the main, hadn't won any silverware themselves. Now, transfer that to Manchester United. Um, I think there's no doubt he will improve results. There's no doubt he will improve performances. But then I think you could take almost any other manager in the Premier League and put them in Manchester United and they would improve performances and results. That's how poor Solskjaer's um, management and training, coaching, handling of the players, handling of, of fitness concerns has been. So the improvement is easy for um for a, a better level of manager. And, and with Pochettino, you're talking about significantly better level of manager. I'm not sure he, he necessarily gets them playing the Manchester United way. The, you know, the Alex Ferguson, um, they're, they're kind of, it's almost mythical in some ways because even Ferguson didn't play that way all the time. And he, he, he changed his style to succeed in the Champions League in the latter stages of his Manchester United career. But the sort of wing dependent attacking football I'm not sure that's Pochettino's style. Um, in fact, he, he used a lot of different strategic approaches, but he did play, as you say, with the ball on the deck, passing from the back. He would get the team playing more attractive football. I don't think you see Pochettino um, frequently lining up with five at the back and, and uh, low block and trying to counter-attack all the time. He, he certainly wouldn't be happy that, with that as a, as a long-term strategy. So... Yes, I think they'll get them to play better football, but I think it is a fair question. With better resources than he had at, at Tottenham in terms of financial resources, um, the squad will see. You know, the, the squad needs significant improvement um, and Pochettino would want to be part of that, uh, redirecting it and changing it to, to fit his style of football and to win things. That, that would help. Um, but you're also now talking about a Manchester United squad that doesn't have a lot of experience of winning silverware. Um, a lot of the the more, um, you know, the, the players who have won stuff have been shifted out. There's been this focus on youth. There's been this focus on players like Harry Maguire and Wan-Bissaka who haven't even played Champions League football yet. 
you know, all three signings in the summer had zero experience of top level European football. All you know signed for reasons that it, their analytics come up well and they fit the the, the cultural reboot model that that uh, Manchester United have sold to their fans. But they don't have experience of winning things, so you could in a way see Pochettino kind of replicating that Tottenham situation and he, he ends up with players who don't know how to win either. And and this was a, a big issue when Mourinho came into the club, who have got used to not winning on a regular basis. I mean, that, that's something that privately Mourinho will talk about. One of his biggest issues when he came into Manchester United was the team had got used to being significantly down the table and not they weren't hurt enough when results went against them. And he felt that mentality that you would expect Manchester United players to have and the mentality that served them well for so many years under Ferguson had disappeared. So that would have to be rebuilt. And you have to say, Pochettino's yet to prove himself in the silverware front. So I think it's a legitimate question. Um, and it, it's not, you know, it's not a straightforward answer that this guy's a very good coach. This guy's done very well in the Premier League at Southampton and Tottenham. Therefore, you put him in Manchester United and it's guaranteed silverware. I think there's there are, you know, personal hurdles for Pochettino to overcome if he gets the job. Well, we've had two questions on Ed Woodward's lengthy written statement to Manchester United's fan forum. One from Tom Smith at Tom177Smith. He's asked, what do you think of the fake Woodward statement? I mean, he says things like this all the time, but never backs it up. Real Madrid spent over 300 million euros and they were already light years ahead. Where is the director of football? It's been two years. That's what I call a Twitter rant, Duncan. You'll be used to those. Um, but very insightful one, and he's probably on point, to be fair. And then we've got another one from Thato at PROTCB. He said, hello, Duncan. Following Ed Woodward's lengthy statement yesterday, can we expect a successful summer transfer window for Manchester United with the likes of Sancho, Grealish and Dembele joining? Um. I think uh, I think our first listener um, has uh, has picked up the problem with the Woodward statement, um, which is we've heard it all before, and it, it's very easy to make these kind of glossy. Um, these are all the things we, we're doing well to to fix things down the line. Kind of statements he's done them in, in interviews. He's, he does them on a regular basis, and uh, you know he's been in the job seven years now and what we've actually seen is a decline and we've seen that these problems he's talking about having to be solved which is to, as he puts it um to get us back to regularly challenging for premier league and champions league titles um have been created under his jurisdiction under his stewardship um so ultimately um he has made the mistakes or has to carry the responsibility for making the mistakes to get the club into uh, that position. Um, I think you see, again, stuff we've heard before, um, this talk about there's been extensive work in our recruitment process with considerable investment in scouting data and analytics. The recruitment department is working to a clear plan and philosophy along with Ollie and his coaching staff. Our focus is on bringing in a combination of experience and the best young players with potential to develop further fusing graduates from our academy with high quality acquisitions. He talks about 
They won't usually do stuff in the January window. They did it because Bruno Fernandes became available at uh, a realistic price, one of the players had already targeted, which begs the question of why they didn't sign him in the summer when they had discussions about the player, uh, when he was available, and according to people involved in the deal, would have been securable for a lower transfer fee than they ended up paying. Um, he talks, I think this isn't very clever, he, he, he says, as part of the rebuild, we see this coming summer as an important opportunity. Um, and then finishes it off with a statement about improving um, matters at Old Trafford or um, the Theatre of Leaks, as some Manchester United fans have come to describe it, um, uh, talking proudly of ongoing reviews of matchday catering and beverage provision, which I'm sure Manchester United fans will be delighted to hear that, um, that Ed and co are reviewing the quality of food and drink at the stadium, um, when what they really want is the quality of football to be improved. Um, I don't think, honestly, I don't think it means anything. I think it's a, it's a, it's a statement that was read out to the fans forum. He, it's interesting. He didn't appear in person. wasn't prepared to take questions. Was on the final day of the January window that forum. Um, so um, you can argue that they were pretty busy with stuff on that thirty first of January, um, scouring the Chinese uh, transfer market for the cultural reboot striker that they brought in just before deadline. Um, waking him up in the in the small hours of the morning to get the deal done as he's described in his, his interviews since um, arriving at the club um what does it mean for the likes of sancho Grealish and dembele joining look they're off targets um jaden sancho wants to come back to england uh we've told you on the podcast through the january window that he uh, and his representatives were quite close to doing a deal with Chelsea, that the the um, the hierarchy at Chelsea were keen to bring the player in, and we're talking over 100 million euros for Sancho now, and very substantial wages, but that Frank Lampard wasn't convinced that was the right way to go. Jack Grealish, um, they made an attempt to sign in January. Aston Villa knocked that back, um, obviously not wanting to lose their key player during the season when they're trying to retain Premier League status. I think there is a, a, a real opportunity for Manchester United there in the summer. Um, Grealish is not a player you'll see staying indefinitely at Aston Villa if he continues this um, uh, progress in his game. Um, and you would expect Aston Villa to take a big transfer fee for him at some point. The question, of course, will be does he choose to go to Manchester United? Um, should another uh, affluent suitor come in with who can offer him uh, a more competitive football team to play in? Moussa Dembele is strongly interested in playing for Manchester United. Um, I think they could have signed a player in January if they had managed to agree a fee with Leon, but it would have been a, a really substantial fee. Uh, the Olympic Lyonnais president was intimating that he would want 100 million euros for the player. Uh, in many ways, it makes more sense to wait to the summer in terms of trying to get that, that fee down um, because then Leon can plan and replace and uh, have a better, a better situation for them to sell the player. Um, but again, they're going to have the issue there of should another big English club come in for Dembele 
uh, and go head-to-head with them. And Chelsea are obviously a strong candidate there, as Chelsea bid for, actually bid for Dembele in the, in the January window. Which one will he choose? Um, as I say, I don't think the statement makes any difference whatsoever. I, I, I just think you've got to take all everything that, um, that Woodward says about strategies um, and transfer market and spending um, and being competitive again with a, with a big pinch of, of salt. Okay, we're going to move on to another question now. This time it's from Khaled Al Hussein at Khaled ERH. This is about the Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund. And he's asked, uh, I have a question to Duncan about the acquisition by Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, PIF, of Manchester United or Newcastle. Which team of these two has a good environment to invest, is easy to develop and less complicated? The second question, which would be more beneficial of the EPL, the PIF, TakeOver, Manchester United or Newcastle? I don't think either of them are easy to invest in. Um, we've seen Mike Ashley back, back a lot of offers for Newcastle United. Um, he has said that he's ready to sell the club. But if you talk to the people who have actually gone in and tried to secure it, they will say it's been difficult to nail him down to a price. Um, on Ashley's side, I think the argument is that they get a lot of people who aren't as serious as they present themselves to be um, to the public. Um, people sometimes who want attention from the media. Um, we saw that um, approach in the summer from uh, a UAE-based uh, investment group who were very um, open to talking to English newspapers and to domestic press about their attempt to buy Newcastle United. But the information we were getting back from um, from those involved uh, in selling the club was nothing had actually substantially happened and, and they didn't expect it to go through. And as it turned out, it didn't go through. So th- there are people who think that Ashley is, is kind of happy to have this stance of the club is available for sale. I'm ready to, to leave if the right person comes in and um, run it in a way where he makes a, a profit um, or the club doesn't make losses each year um, with the expectation that at some point a very substantial bid will come in and he can take his profit that way. Other people would argue that Mike Ashley quite likes the public profile and, and likes being associated with Newcastle United, although it's quite a painful one at times and comes with a huge amount of criticism. Um, they're, they're certainly in the in the investment world, in the takeover world, when Newcastle United are, are discussed, there is an open question as to how you actually get that deal done. Um, I think if you get the price right for Newcastle United, it is a good investment. They have a, a huge support, a very loyal support. They have a big stadium. Um, they're run in a way that you can add quite a lot of spending to the club um, and into the, the first team uh, rapidly um, and improve the quality of product on the, on the pitch if you get the right people in charge of that spending and, and coaching the team and, uh, and get them higher up the league. And they certainly have the potential domestically, I think that because of that strength of support, to become a, a, a powerful force in the Premier League. Um, I'm not sure internationally they have the same um, degree of, of uh, support or buy-in that other clubs do. But, you know, it, 
you can compare them to Manchester City when Abu Dhabi took over the club. And Manchester City um, were in a poorer position in many ways in terms of, of how the club was set up when um, Abu Dhabi bought into them. Um, they're, although they historically have a very good support in England, they um, have struggled to sell out the stadium uh, even with the over a decade of, of you know, the greatest investment we've ever seen into a single football club um, coming from Abu Dhabi into it. Uh, and internationally, they don't have a huge support. They're only really developing that now off the back of, of their Premier League success. And, and obviously, they haven't managed to achieve in the Champions League, which is probably the thing that which, which really develops a, an international support. Um, the problem is financial fair play. So you could not do as Saudi Arabia, you could not come into um, Newcastle United and just throw uh, absurd amounts of money at the problem and buy some of the best players in the world um, rapidly as Abu Dhabi did with Manchester City because of the financial fair play regulations as they exist at the moment. So you'd have to have a more considered and strategic approach to building that, which would be dependent, I think, on hiring the right people. With Manchester United, you have more scope because of their existing revenues, although the club's um, not in a great financial status at the moment. It's definitely headed in the wrong direction. There are still, you can clear out the debts there and you can have um, a large amount of, of, of the cash that the club generates off its own back then available to invest into the squad. You will, however, have to pay a lot more to buy the club. So whereas with Newcastle United, the sort of figure that's mentioned is 300 million pounds, the figure with, Ma with uh, Manchester United that's mentioned on the marketplace is three billion pounds. And arguably the Glazers would seek to, to get a higher sum than that. And if they can get um, Saudi Arabia to commit to it, they, that's probably the best bar you have in the world in terms of uh, a country prepared with the, with the ability to invest a huge amount into the football club. Um, second question, which would be more beneficial to the Premier League? Uh, Saudi Arabia, PIF, take over Manchester United or Newcastle? I think whatever happens, this is going to be controversial. Um, you know, it's the, the reason Saudi Arabia are looking at buying a football club is to emulate what Abu Dhabi and Qatar have done um, with uh, buying one of the prominent teams in a major European league with the aim of winning the Champions League uh, to associate their country with that club, um, to get the publicity involved in being associated with that club in the way that Abu Dhabi in particular have done, you know, Abu Dhabi companies plastered all over Manchester City, the stadium named after one of their uh, their principal companies, Et Etihad Airways, etc., etc., etc. The difficulty, I think, is that the, the sports washing model is now is now very much understood, um, and it's criticised by Amnesty International. It's criticised by opposition fans. I think there's going to be a great deal more resistance to Saudi Arabia. Um, becoming the nation state owner of a football club than there was when Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain were purchased. Um, you know, you, you've seen the criticism from major people in, in football. Um, Javier Tabas in particular, the, the Liga president, 
um, talking about the fact that Manchester City should have been punished more heavily for breaking competition rules in the Champions League. And we, we wait to see whether UEFA will have the courage to um, follow up a recommendation that they be banned from the Champions League as a punishment for breaking FFP rules. So, so Saudi Arabia want to emulate that model, but it's going to be a harder model to emulate because the costs of buying are higher and the resistance in the football landscape is higher. Um, I'm not sure it's a great thing for the Premier League for another nation state to come in. I think it's going to cause the league problems. Uh, if you were to say which one of those would be more beneficial in terms of limiting the scope of that sports washing problem, then probably it's Newcastle United because to the extent that financial fair play regulations remain in place after this decision in Manchester City, Newcastle will be more limited than a Manchester United will be. So it will be harder for them to become a, a, power, a dominant powerhouse that, um, that radically unsettles the, the transfer marketplace in the way that Manchester City and, and Paris Saint-Germain were when they were taken over by Abu Dhabi and Qatar. Well, Everton have been in good form, Duncan, and Nora Calder at Women United underscore has asked a question about it. She said, is Carlo Ancelotti showing us the foundations of a real rebuild or is Everton's form simply the bounce effect? I think it's real. I I, I think you, you, you look at the numbers um, and they have Everton under Carlo Ancelotti have the second highest point return of any team in the Premier League apart from the Liverpool who are breaking all records at present. He was appointed 21st December. He's been in charge for eight Premier League matches. Won five of those, thrown two, lost one. If you add in the period where Duncan Ferguson took over from Marco Silva, um, I think they have lost just two of the last 13 games in normal time. They went out of the, the EFL Cup on penalties to Leicester City. But there have only been two defeats, and those two defeats are to Liverpool, albeit embarrassingly to Liverpool's second team, and to Manchester City, which um, they, you know, they gave a reasonable account of themselves. Um, they are now ahead of Manchester United in the Premier League, which gives you an indication, albeit they played a game more, it gives you an indication of just how concertinaed the Premier League is and how if you get a decent run of, of games together, you can accelerate up the division. Um, they're now talking about Europa League as as a target for the season. When Ancelotti came in, they were worried about relegate, avoiding relegation. Um, and I think they're realistically talking about it. You do have to say that they've had a relatively easy set of fixtures um, during the, the period in which Ancelotti has been in charge. And they've got a testing series coming up. They play Arsenal... Manchester United, Chelsea and Liverpool. Um, so that might put a bit of perspective on this. But if you look at the way he's changed the team, um, the, the carried on was the 4-4-2 system that Duncan Ferguson implemented. They're playing what he described as more vertical football, uh, so more direct football, uh, concentrating on on using the abilities of Calvert-Lewin and the Charleston in attack. They've sorted out a lot of their defensive problems, albeit it's difficult to sort out Jordan Pickford's um, habit of making complete rickets in, 
in uh, in games from time to time. But they they look a more solid team, and you listen to the players, and and they they credit the way Ancelotti has handled them um, as individuals and handled the team, and knowing the right buttons to push in terms of criticism or jokes. Um, and this is something Ancelotti has been skillful at throughout his managerial career, and he's showing he can apply it to a less talented crop of players than he's been used to for a long time. Um, so I, I think this is substantial, and I, and I think it, it's interesting to note that Carlo Ancelotti took this job because he wanted to get back into English football. Um, the Arsenal job was available around the same time. Arsenal decided they wanted to go for Mikel Arteta to follow this kind of trend for appointing uh, coaches and managers with either zero experience of management at that level or very little experience of management at that level. Everton took an opportunity they probably wouldn't have had again to get a man who's won multiple Champions League and been a manager at the very, very top level and been successful silverware winning manager in, in that particular window. They spent a lot of money to do it. But you know, note here that Ancelotti would have taken Arsenal. He was prepared to take Everton. He would have loved to have taken the Manchester United job. So you can say quite clearly that Manchester United have missed an opportunity to bring in a manager with that skill set who obviously on paper doesn't feel, fit this cultural reboot model that Edward Wood is selling. And um, there might have been a, you know, a degree of resistance to that had Manchester United appointed him and, and criticism of Woodward for breaking the strategy so soon. But um, he would clearly have been an upgrade on Solskjaer. And you could argue that a manager with that skill set is something that Manchester United need. You know, they, they need a man who's, who's dealt with various different problems and can get your existing squad to perform better and then start putting the pieces in place to, um, to upgrade the squad, use his connections in world football, uh, use his experience of the transfer market to, to turn it into something which can actually have a realistic chance of achieving the stated aim of the club, which is to, um, to be competitive for the Premier League and the Champions League again. How big is the Duncan Ferguson factor in all this? I mean, we're talking about a guy who's seen as a terrifying, aggressive figure who took no prisoners as a player, and I'm sure he has a bit of that about him. But he's also, I think he's 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 a, he's a guy who motivates, who is a man manager, who will get the players wanting to play for him. Is there a sense that that kind of more old school guy, alongside the urbane, witty, intellectual of uh, Carlo Ancelotti is, is a nice mix for the modern player, Duncan? Well, look, Ferguson deserves huge credit for turning the results around and, and, and setting the platform for this run, uh, this positive run from Everton. We forget what kind of state they were in when he took over and, and the players had tired of Marco Silva and Marco Silva, I think, had tired of Everton. It, was, it wasn't, wasn't a good situation there. Um, I think... Yes, he's, he's motivationally very clever and he loves the football club. And, uh, and he was able, I think with, with Ferguson, you are 
possibly talking about the bounce effect and you would you know you'd question whether Ferguson would have been able to sustain that over the course of a season but Ferguson I think was very aware of that and he wasn't he wasn't fighting to take the job he wasn't sort of he he had a platform where he could have pushed and used the Everton support to put pressure on um, Farhad Mashiri and the owners of the football club to make him manager and I think Bill Kenwright would have been receptive to that but he didn't do that he was happy to do the job for that period and happy to have a, a more experienced man come in and work alongside him and I think that's clever and, and shows his loyalty to the football club and, and maybe um, maybe a, a sense of I'm going to learn things from, from Carlo Ancelotti and my, you know, my, I've got lots of time ahead of me in my coaching career, so there's no need to rush it here. But I think Ancelotti has also been very clever in retaining Ferguson and, and making him an important part of his management team and seeing the value he, he has, um, the buy-in he has from the fans and the players, and the knowledge of the club, um, the links he has with people like Bill Kenwright, who are still important in the running of Everton, so you you know you've you've got a good combination there, and and for sure Everton are benefiting from having Ferguson as the assistant to Carlo Ancelotti, no question about it. Yeah, between uh, Carlo Ancelotti and uh, Big Jim McLean, um, he will have had all the inspiration he needs to become a top class manager, as I'm sure you'll agree, Mister Castles. Well, I worked under the 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 best tactician and one of the most innovative managers of that era in, in UK football, and Jim McLean. That's where he started his career at Dundee United. And uh, um, I think even Sir Alex Ferguson would admit that, um, that McLean was more of the innovator and, uh, and the better tactician um, on, the, on the field of play. Uh, Ferguson was the better man manager and proved it um, down the line of his career. But yeah, Ferguson has that experience of starting under one of the one of the very top managers of um, of that generation of uh, of Scottish footballers, Scottish and European footballers. Famously called Wee Jim, of course. I refer to him as Big. I was clearly talking about his temper, not his <laughs> uh, physical size, which was volcanic. But we're going to move on now to a question from Klaus Christensen at City Hammers. Now, he's asked, there are many rumours flying around about Man City in the forthcoming transfer window, but who do you think City will buy? And he's added a wee addendum at the end there, Duncan. He said, and please leave Messi out. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> well, let's see what happens with Lionel Messi because um, Messi has manufactured a, a position where he has got a huge amount of strength in this coming transfer market and a huge amount of strength at Barcelona. Um, and I will be surprised if Manchester City are not involved in that process to some extent. Remember, this is the player that um, Khaldun Al-Mubarak, the chairman of the club, um, and a you know very influential figure in the Abu Dhabi hierarchy, uh, monarchy, government, has talked about being his biggest regret, not being able to sign the player. Um, Messi and his people used Manchester City to get the um, record-breaking contract he uh, achieved to stay at Barcelona last time. Um, again, it wouldn't surprise me if they are quite happy to get Manchester City involved in the process again. And 
as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, we have this question over what UEFA are going to do over financial fair play. If UEFA back off and allow Manchester City to get away with um, all the transgressions of the financial fair play regulations without a Champions League ban, the sense is that's pretty much it for financial fair play as an effective tool to control these nation state clubs. And then you get a situation where Manchester City might think, well, now the floodgates are open again and we can throw vast amounts of cash to try and get the player. But, you know, Klaus is right. Barcelona is the place where he has always been. The expectation would be that he would remain there. The expectation would be that you'll get another bumper contract and, and, and more power at the club. Um, I, I just don't rule them out of this equation altogether. I think it's, as we talked about last week, I think it's going to be a big window for Manchester City. Pep Guardiola is putting huge pressure on them to overhaul his squad and uh, and create something which has a realistic chance in his view of winning the Champions League. He feels the players have, um, have tired and are not performing at the level they were over the last two seasons. He wants players shifted out, he wants fresh blood in, he wants guys who are more receptive to um, to the way he works. Um, one player for sure who is high on their list is Adama Traore. Um, we broke that story in the podcast of uh, Manchester City being in contact with his representatives to assess what it would take to, to get him out of Wolves. Um, we talked last week um, that uh, Wolves' ownership are floating the idea that they would want 150 million euros for Adama Traore, which again shows you that they, they they see the player as one, there will be a big and substantial market for this summer. They know Manchester City are interested. They think Manchester City are going to spend big, so they want to extract a mu- as much cash from them as possible. Um, if that deal happens, I'd be very surprised if City are able to secure the player for anything less than 80 million euros. Um, and possibly they'll have to go over 100 million. Either of those figures are going to um, set a new record, club record for buys. Um, they have lots of areas, other areas to deal with. They have to recruit at centre-back. They probably have to recruit at left-back to satisfy Pep Guardiola. David Silva is leaving. Um, it doesn't look like Guardiola is going to go for Phil Foden as first-choice replacement, given that he has the opportunity to play Foden regularly this season and hasn't taken it, despite him talking about being the most talented player he's ever worked under. So you have the possibility there of a, of a, an expensive David Silva replacement coming in. I know they were interested in Trincao, the uh, Braga winger who Barcelona signed in, in January for £31 million. Uh, and immediately put a half billion euro release clause. Um, Barcelona have beaten them to that one, but there, there you see another um, wide uh, attacking player um, who would fit into the category of a of a Leroy Zani replacement. And they have that problem to solve: um, whether they can convince Zani to sign a new contract, or whether he will go through um, with the opportunity he has to to leave um, for Bayern Munich. Um, Gabriel Jesus, I think, is still an issue for them. told you last week in the podcast that they had a substantial offer for Jesus last summer from Bundesliga club, which uh, my information is Manchester City were prepared to accept. 
but Jesus refused to move there, um, didn't want to leave the Premier League. So that tells you that they have, they were considering replacing Jesus. And I think it's difficult to argue that that consideration that it might have been an idea, to, a good idea to replace Jesus if a good offer for him comes around has been dissipated by his performances this season. He's very much second choice. Guardiola uses him in the games. Um, where either he doesn't have Aguero available or um, he wants to give Aguero a rest. So Gabriel Jesus usually plays against the weaker sides. So you can see spending throughout the team um, and a lot of spending in that team um, in the coming summer. Okay, we're going to move on to another City-based question from Sammy at Sammy1679. Now, Sammy has asked, how big a failure will it be if Pep fails to get past a Madrid team without Eden Hazard? And who's under more pressure to win this tie? Is it the Madrid who embarrassingly lost to Ajax last season or City who have spent so much over the years? And uh, Sammy adds that the questions that uh, they've asked have only been answered twice in history. So, Duncan, you're making it thrice right now. What do you think? Asked three questions in the transfer podcast. That's pretty good. I'm sorry, Sammy's not happy with that return, but he's, he's got it to three now. Um, certainly, uh, that's what uh, Pep Guardiola has to do in the Champions League. He has to get his 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 count to three. Um, he has two wins, both at Barcelona, both arguably with the most talented squad um, that any club has ever possessed in in modern European football. Obviously, both with Lionel Messi in the side. Um, a history of failure subsequent to that, despite having huge support in terms of financial resources and in terms of quality of the squad at Bayern Munich and then Manchester City. Um, most expensive squad ever assembled at Manchester City. He has only beaten in the knockout rounds of uh, the Champions League in his three um, full seasons at Manchester City, Schalke and Basel. And he even managed to lose at home to Basel after thumping them in the first leg. He's gone out to Monaco, gone out to Liverpool, gone out to Tottenham, not got further than the quarterfinals. Um, obviously, they are dead in the Premier League. Um, and he, he's admitted that they're dead in the Premier League. This is the opportunity to focus on Champions League um, and the opportunity to put that track record of, of failure behind him. And they should be able to beat Real Madrid. Um, you know, he, he should have the resources available to him if he handles them well and comes up with a good tactical plan to beat a club like Real Madrid and knock out rounds of the Champions League. Madrid are top of La Liga at the moment, but they're top of a of a of a unusual La Liga where the top sides have been dropping points on a regular basis. Um, they're top with with a coach who's been under pressure for a good chunk of the season, um, who his um, president had prepared plans to replace when the moment arose during the season, but the moment hasn't arose because of this array that Barcelona and Atletico have been in, which has allowed them to, to stay top. So the, you can't look at Real Madrid and say, this is the Real Madrid who won three consecutive Champions Leagues. Therefore, um, Guardiola gets a pass if he can't manage to beat them. Um, they are there to be taken. And um, and when you have the resources that Guardiola has at his disposal and are supposed to be 
the best manager in football, you should be able to come up with a solution to these knockout games. So I, I think the pressure is on him. Absolutely, the pressure is on him. Um, and uh, and I think a big part of that pressure comes from Abu Dhabi, who bought into this club with the aim to be the first of the the um, nation state owners to to win the Champions League trophy, to take Europe's premier club trophy. Um, and neither them nor Paris Saint-Germain have done it. And as we're talk, we talked about earlier in the podcast, Saudi Arabia are now discussing and looking at the possibility and, and having conversations about joining that party. Um, so perhaps Guardiola needs to do it as soon as possible before another um, big player comes onto the market with substantial resources uh, to build a, a squad that costs even more than the one he's been in charge of for the last um, three and a half seasons. Okay, well, that's all the questions for today. We're going to move on now to the Donkey Awards, which is uh, many listeners' favourite, and it's certainly my favourite part of the show because... I get to add some of my well-renowned humour to proceedings. <laughs> <laughs> Renowned in my back room, but nowhere else. Anyway, regardless, today's donkey is the Michael Gove Award for entirely predictable friction and fiction. This is in reference to comments Mr Gove made today that there would indeed be friction and forthcoming trade between Europe and the UK, despite both he and many of his colleagues saying the opposite, throughout the EU referendum and in debates since. So, Duncan, have you got that? I'm going to open this this donkey envelope, which will give us the candidates. That's it, open now. And the first one is Maurizio Sarri. Wherever he goes, there tends to be friction. He left Napoli and seemed to have uh, a bit of a set two with the Lorientes, a man that you, you, could, you couldn't really fall out with. I mean, he's, he's a guy that's... Uh, of normal and very steady temper, uh, temperament, so uh, that, that's weird. He went to Chelsea and nearly stormed out in the middle of a cup final over an argument with a player. Uh, and now things seem to be going a little pear-shaped at Juventus, with the Turin club falling off the top of the league for the first time as uh, Antonio Conte's Inter comes to the fore. And Serie A, so there's severe pressure on Maurizio Sarri. So he's my first nomination. The second one is Paul Pogba. Um, now, I think we know all about the problems Mr Pogba's had at Manchester United. Between him and his agent, they've kicked up quite a fuss over the last few months and certainly since he arrived at the club, let's be honest. Um, Mino Riola said uh, in an interview in late December, Paul's, Pogba's problem is Manchester United. It's a club out of touch with reality and without a sporting project. I wouldn't take anyone there. They would even ruin Maradona Pelly and Maldini. Interesting quotes, I'm sure you'll agree, Duncan, especially when you take into fact he was quoted before saying the following. Paul has always, res always respected Manchester United, just as Manchester United has always respected Paul. And the only one that talks for Manchester United and for Paul is Ole. I go by what he says. Pogba will not move, and that's okay. We are good with them. So, Mr. Paul Pogba and his agent Muna Riola are my second nominations. And my third one is, well, who else could it be? And today of all days, as he becomes a Twitter phenom once again, Sam Allardyce jumped in his Ford Granada and made his way to the Talk Sports studios where he made some comments uh, slaughtering Italian football, saying it's very defensive and it's always been like that. Obviously, these comments coming on the back of a 
Milan derby that saw AC 2-0 up and uh, turned the game around to win 4-2. Just a wee cursory look at some of the facts here, which uh, are obviously escaped Mr Allardyce. The average goals per game in Italy this season is 2.95. Average goals per game in the Premier League, what do you think, Duncan? Tell us, tell us. 2.75. So the facts aren't in Mr Allardyce's favour either. So... Super Size Sam is my third nomination because, let's be honest, he's talking nonsense once again. Donkey, well, who, I think, who wins? I think, I think that's the, the longest nominations process ever and I, I feel like I don't oh. have much to do here with, with that <laughs> extensive explanation of, of every detail of this. Um, Pogba and Raiola specialise in friction. Uh, friction's a way to make money for them. Down the line, um, as you say, that uh, swift change of commentary about Manchester United from a you know a placed interview, I think in the Telegraph, where he was talking about how he would never move Pogba away from Manchester United against his will, and how much respect he had for Solskjaer, and where it was the right place for him to be, as he happened to be chatting um, with United and trying to get an Erling Haaland deal over the line there with substantial commission and. Um, and future earnings involved, uh, and that fell through, and suddenly we were back to the, the frictional position. Um, Sam Allardyce, yes, firing up the Ford Granada and uh, and running into um, a brick wall as he as he likes to to do. Yes, uh, I I struggle to remember the last time I watched uh, an entertaining Sam Allardyce game um, where he didn't play defensive football. Um, I, I may be being unfair to him because I tend to avoid watching Sam Allardyce games because they, they're pretty predictable in, in the way they, they pan out because he's good at setting out defensive teams and he's good at keeping them in the Premier League. But it's um, it's interesting he chooses to make that criticism. Maybe he's just upset that Inter didn't come and offer him the job and, and offer him the big money in the in the way that... Uh, that Antonio uh, Conte was offered it, and um, you know, as, as we've, as he's told us so many times, if only he'd been given the Real Madrid job, he would have won Champions League after Champions League as a, as a football manager. And um, it's so long ago since the first one, you're going to have to remind me of the the nomination now, uh, Mr. Maurizio Sarri. Yes, he is a man who causes friction, and uh, as our. Um, our fine Italian correspondent has explained on the podcast, um, Aurelio Capaldi, uh, what happened with him at Chelsea was entirely predictable. Um, he finished up at Napoli in an extremely messy fashion with De Laurentiis and uh, uh, the camp having tired of, of his ways. And uh, as Aurelio pointed out, he was the very much a bizarre appointment for Juventus, one that he doesn't think will be a, a long-term appointment and and one where um, those issues of uh, being wedded to a particular style of play um, and and uh, being dogmatic in his implementation of it with the players and also um, the, the friction he's, he's caused in press conferences with some of, some of his statements. So I think to prevent... Sam Aladici from getting another of these because he, he probably doesn't have much room left in his silverware cabinet for anything other than donkeys. I'm going to give this one to a new winner and um, Maurizio Sarri is going to get the award this week. That's good because uh, I think our budget's not going to stretch to any more cheap white wine for Sam drinking it pints at a time. 
Um, so well done to Maurizio Sari on this, the week where we saw the Oscars given out. Uh, a similarly prestigious award goes to the Italian and is getting packed up and sent to Turin as we speak. That's all from us today on the Thinking Fans Football Podcast. We will be back on Friday as usual. We'd like to talk to you about our social media platforms. Not only do we have Twitter, which is the basis of this show, where you give us questions, we also have other platforms too. Twitter, as ever, is at Transfer Podcast. You can get Duncan at Duncan Castles. You can get myself at Johnny R. McFarlane. But on Instagram, we're also at Transfer Podcast. We're gathering followers apace there. So come and join the picture-based discussion. Is that fair, Duncan? Is that me summing up Instagram correctly? Um, are you not on Instagram yourself? Do we not have a, a Kaiser Doc Instagram account? I think we I, should. I think perhaps we should. Um, I don't think anyone really wants to see photographs of me in my pants on holiday, do they? Let's be honest. There was one Duncan Castles thing. There was one. There was one listener who was asking for um, photographic evidence of your Kenny G bath time <laughs> session um, from last Thursday, but. Uh, Maybe Instagram is the platform for them. Kaiser Duck and Kenny G. I think my wife may have tweeted in out of Duncan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you want to follow Duncan on Instagram, you also can. And you can obviously get us on Facebook too. The long and short of it is whatever media platform you're on in terms of social media, we are there and there is conversation uh, that emanates from what we discuss in the podcast. So come on and join the debate on those. If you like the podcast, we know thousands of you do, get on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. The more reviews we get, the more people that can listen to the podcast and the more brilliant content we can bring to you. So go on and do that as well. Until next time, thanks for listening. (laughs) 